until Valhalla, ancient Viking proverb. He's kind of crazy, she's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is the forest, the other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a Silver Linings Playcast. Oh yeah. Hello everybody and welcome to the Silver Linings Playcast. I'm your host, Jamie Ward of the Silver Linings Playcast. As far as I know, it's the only podcast solely devoted to the movie Silver Linings Playbook and the book, The Silver Linings Playbook. Hope everybody's having a happy Thanksgiving. I know I hate the holidays. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, November's are are one of my least favorite months of the year. Uh, but we're not going to dwindle on that too much, but I do want to start off with uh, something a little different. Um, the quote at the beginning, until Valhalla, that's an ancient Viking proverb, and it sort of meant, until we meet again in heaven for warriors, Valhalla being the banquet hall that Vikings believe that Honorable warriors would go and sort of get to be in like a, a heaven, um, sort of like a mess hall with all their their friends and live peacefully uh, for the rest of eternity after they died. The Hells of Valhalla, you've probably heard those things. I chose that quote um, because it is the six-year anniversary of the passing of uh, a very special person to me. Uh, so this, this podcast is dedicated today to Staff Sergeant Eric Acton, who I met in Afghanistan. He was my medic for a short time, but my friend uh, for far longer. And he was just simply one of the best men I ever met. I got to go visit his grave a few years ago when I went on my uh, notorious 48 and 10 trip. It was a very special moment. I was very happy to see him. Uh, I miss you, buddy, so much. I... Would love to talk to that guy, uh, have a conversation. He always knew what to say. He gave me so much good advice. He was younger than me, and yet his soul was so much older. I love you forever, bud, and I hope to meet again one day. You know, there's nobody I'd like to talk to more than you. All right, moving on. Uh, unrelated to that, too. Uh, actually, I'd forget. I'd, I'd, I, I always forget because they don't memorialize dates specifically, but I knew it was about that time of the year. And, uh, for multiple confluence of things, uh, people that have been listening to this regularly can probably see the gradual decline of my sanity <laughs> over the last year. <laughs> I am a mess right now. Uh, but for some reason, like most comics, comics and entertainers will know this, especially, um, sometimes the actual state of how you're doing does not correspond with how you sound. That is one of the reasons why I find comedy to be such a hard life style that sometimes we're the most miserable and yet we have that professionalism to go on stage, turn it on, and make other people happy. And so that's what we're going to do, because if these podcasts end up being the only record of my existence ever, uh, let people that find these think that I was doing better than I was. That being said, we're going to do something else kind of weird. This is almost going to be like an anti-sponsorship. If you listen to a lot of other podcasts, most of the podcasts I listen to, writing podcasts, uh, entertainment industry podcasts, and such like that, all seem to be sponsored by this website. Um, betterhelp.com, which is supposed to be a website 
that helps people find the mental help that is right for them, tailored to them in an environment where it's often hard to connect uh, the right person with the right mental health specialist. Well, this week I broke down and I finally thought that maybe I would pursue getting some some help. Uh, I have had gone to different different resources in the past, uh, seeing different professionals. I went on their website. I started filling out their questionnaire so they could find out more about you to link you up with the right person. And it stopped my questionnaire about halfway through and said, we can't help you. You need to call the crisis hotline right now and then come back to us (laughs) when you're better. Um, this is a common thing that happens. I understand it. I understand it from a professional standpoint, but I say there needs to be a better system. There needs to be some awareness in the mental health community that some people just do not want to deal with the crisis hotlines. One, I don't want to talk to a stranger on the phone and maybe that maybe the best thing I could do for myself was I was trying trying against every instinct of who I, who I feel like I am in my personhood to maybe pursue getting some help. And your, your line is going to defer me to, to a resource, which is more hard to use than even a regular one. I have an easier time talking to a person, to a stranger in person than I do an anonymous phone call. And so maybe somebody in the professional field should think about that. Maybe it is worth, I don't know the statistics and I am not a mental health professional uh, myself, but it might be worth pursuing at some point to let some of these services, let people who might, you know, according to the questionnaire, be crisis level people, uh, you know, just get through and talk to the regular people that are not you know, there to, to mitigate a 24 hour emergency or something. I'm only saying that because, uh, isn't, isn't this one of those cases where you want to give the, those people any opportunity they can, and maybe it's better to, you know, give somebody worse help than what they need immediately at the higher risk that it will fail and something bad will happen. Uh, over the fact that, you know, making somebody go to the crisis hotline is going to scare a lot of people off completely, especially in that state. <laughs> that was awful. Let's, um, let's change topics and get to this episode. I think we've got a lot of really fun, interesting information that's going to happen. And that, that is all the therapy I need, Whitney Houston. I, that is my ringtone, and it hasn't gone off in eight months, but that's okay. Uh, I'm sure some people out there still love me. Actually, they do. It's my fault. I uh, am terrible to everyone else. All right. So, uh, I have been reading a lot of philosophy, watching a lot of philosophy, studying a lot of philosophy. It is the one thing that I find comforting in life more so than religion, more so in psychology. Uh, I don't think it is superior or inferior to any of those. It is just a different way to look at the world and self from, uh, what the other, other personality types, uh, enjoy the most. If, 
you, um, you know, are religious or you like to get mental help from a medical standpoint, go do that. Uh, I, I just find this fascinating and I think it's one of the most overlooked ways to sort of bring peace or, or attempt to in your, in your life. So one of the interesting things, we're going to get into some SLP relevance to this in a second, but I want to start off getting everybody on the same page that I am for the things I've been thinking about this week. And part of this is uh, sort of identity theory or the metaphysics of, of how we identify ourselves. Now, this might seem like a very simple thing, but there's actually two major sort of metaphysical th- theories about this. And if you never studied it, um, which I have to say I hadn't really until this week, it's very fascinating and not as simple as, as you might think. So the main ones are there's this, this body identity theory, and that's sort of that we are who we are over our lifetime because we are in the same body our whole lives, right? From birth to death, all the things that make us who we are are contained within one body the whole time, and it's that consistency that sort of makes us who we are. Now, the other one is memory identity, and that is sort of discounting the body as being relevant and saying we are who we are because uh, we are a constant and and dynamic uh, range of experiences uh, which become memories over the course of our lives, right? And there's a whole bunch of like science fiction theories and, and thought uh, experiments about, you know, like what if we put uh, the brain or soul of, of one person into another body? Is that the same person? One of the best ways to think about this is an ancient, ancient thought experiment, one of the original philosophical uh, conundrums, and it's, it was known as the Ship of Theseus. And this was a metaphysical thought experiment that was talked about uh, in ancient Greece by Heraclitus, Plato, Plutarch, and every philosopher that covered identity from then on. And it's, it's basically this, right? So if you build a ship and it goes out and then, it, it, you know, it, it works and lives for a while and then you come back and you start replacing it plank by plank, uh, you know, and then those planks are different. They're not the original boards that were part of the original ship and the ship keeps going out and coming back and they keep replacing different planks and planks. At some point, every piece of wood of that ship Maybe a different piece of wood than the original wood that was the ship was constructed of. Now, is that ship the same ship? That uh, I don't have a definite answer. None of these philosophers ever come up with a definite answer. Some they have different thoughts on it. Uh, and, and here's the weird thing: our Bodies literally do the same thing. Cells reproduce. There, you can look up very easily over the the lifespan of cells that our bodies regenerate, and we have completely different bodies over the course of very short amounts of time, relatively speaking. Um, and then it's it's just it's an interesting thing to think about. Like, who are we? Do we change as people? Right. Uh, how do we identify who we are? Do we become completely different people as we transition through life? Are we always who we are in a moment? And does that mean we are not who we were in previous moments? I, I definitely have different feelings about these things. Some that I'm working out about myself right now. It's a, 
very interesting thing. One of the ways you can see this best, like make it not, um, I'm saying that weird. One of the ways I saw it in my life that sort of shows how not easy it is to, to have a, a cohesive thought about what is the right answer for this. It's thinking about friendships of people like that I knew as kids. And, and it's weird. There's some people in life who like I uh, have changed over the course of my life and knowing them for my whole life. And some of us, we have drifted apart and why, because we've become different people. And I remember being as a kid and thinking, Oh, we will be best friends forever. So close and stuff. And then sometimes we've, we've gone away for long amounts of time and, and then remet. And it's weird because we are both different people. We have some shared memories, but like our, our beliefs and things have changed. Our feelings about things have changed. Our experiences have changed who we are. Are we the same people? Now, I don't want to make that sound all depressing because sometimes that means that, uh, you know, um, you're making room for other better people. Now, but on the other end of that spectrum, there are people who I don't even see that often, but it's like every time we're in the same room, we pick up right where we left off as if nothing has changed. Every phone call, text, or meeting is like the exact same time over a course of time. So it's a, there's some really really fascinating different concepts to think about. And I, I definitely encourage anybody who's interested in this type of thing at all to explore some of that. Go on YouTube. There's very just short snippet um, videos that are a lot more fun than like college lectures and stuff. And, and just look up identity philosophy and look, you know, uh, some of the newer ones like uh, John Locke is sort of one of the famous people who uh, was a real pioneer of the, the memory identity theory, saying that we are not really trapped. In, you know, we're not just uh, us because we're in the body, but we're us because we're a collection of experiences. Um, David Hume, who was another philosopher, said, if having a certain identity means possessing the same set of properties, then how could anyone really maintain the same identity from one moment to the next? So there's, there's some good places to start. If you're interested in more, more people to look up, you can always look up, uh, hit me up at silverliningsplaycast at gmail.com with questions. Uh, we're not back on social media yet. We've been hopping on and off, but one of the, I definitely wanted to stay away right now, especially cause I didn't really want memories of, uh, my, my friend popping up cause I've, I know they've been sad and I also try to stay off when I'm being too uh, depressed because I'm, I don't want to broadcast my depression to everyone else. I want to do it by podcast <laughs> so that it's not just a few sentences to a bunch of people. It is uh, much more thorough and sad when you can hear me in real life. Okay. So what is our topic of the week concerning Silver Linings Playbook ish? themes. Now I wanted to talk about the best fictional couples portrayed in movies, TVs, books, and blah, 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 all of that. Um, I think it's mostly going to be movies because I'm not, it's not like a super extensive list based on anything. It is just some of my, the people that I think are, are the best character depicted relationships 
right? And then we want to talk about where uh, Pat and Tiffany fall on that list. And what I want to say from the very beginning is I don't think that Pat and Tiffany are a very good couple. I think that they made for a great movie because there is a lot of conflict and their story. But here's the weird thing about romance movies, right? So movies that are like 90 minutes to two hours usually take the whole movie to get these characters that you know are supposed to be together together, and yet you need conflict in their life to make the movie interesting. Otherwise, we would just watch two people fall in love, and then they're just in love for the the two hours, right? But in real life, if you have that much conflict with that little connection for a majority of your life, is that really going to set you up for a good relationship, right? If you boil Silver Linings Playbook down into it's about two crazy people that can't stand each other and then they fall in love, is that people that are really going to be destined for things greater. Now I'm not saying they're not too, because there's more to that. Some of it is we watch their growth together. And I think the interesting thing that happens, I'm sorry how many times I'm saying the interesting thing about, but these things interest me. That's why I do this podcast, right? So it's really going to be interesting to see, do these characters uh, start at their different points? And is the movie about them growing into each other and together into something that they're building? Or are they just creating conflict with one another until they break down and settle for one another? That has some to do with the writing of the film too. It's not completely the characters or, and so my list is also, it's not necessarily going to be like the top 10 most romantic, uh, couples ever, depicted some of them I think are just a really amazingly authentic depictions and they're not going to be in any order of precedence or anything they're just going to be 10 couples that I find fascinatingly written and acted and created to be together in these things also some of them might be based on real people but we are only talking about their fictional portrayal in movies or TV. Actually, I'm looking and I think I have no books. Okay, so let's start off with the number one couple of all time. It is actually from a book. Uh, and I don't think it's going to come as any surprise to any of you. It is Romeo and Mercutio. <laughs> That's right. That's the old bait and switch. No, uh, Romeo and Mercutio. Come on. Um, so many guys have killed themselves for women in the past. That is a hack premise by now. You might as well, you, you know, how you, that's almost certainty that you're going to be a great musician and go down to history, right? But uh, Romeo and Mercutio were best friends from Romeo and Juliet, right? And Romeo watched Mercutio die in front of him, and then he avenged him, even though they were not on speaking terms at the time. That is friendship right there. That is a relationship. That is somebody that has your back. That is a true bro. And I really hope that I have some of that bro ship in life because I have not talked to one of my best friends in almost a year. And I hate myself for that. 
and you'll probably never listen to this, but, but I'm sorry. And I, I miss you. I just can't bring myself to apologize for being a shitty individual. Uh, maybe I will. Maybe I will eventually because like memory identity suggests we are not always going to be who we were. And some of those philosophers think that if we in fact do change as people, we don't have to, to guilt ourselves over who we were in the past because we're a completely different ship. Do I believe that? I'm not sure, but best case scenario, hopefully we can find out. And I was kidding about the Romeo and Mercutio. Let's kick this off. Couple number one, Pam Beasley and Jim Halpert played by Jenna Fisher and John Krasinski in the TV show, The Office. Now, I think that uh, people's feelings are very polarized on The Office. My experience about The Office has changed a lot when it first came out. This is going to sound super hipster of me, but I really, I liked the show before everybody else liked the show. I'm not saying everybody else, but because I watched the British Office, I watched season one, and that's when I really loved the show, and it did not have a good following or ratings, and, and you know, it's season two that it really took off, and that it was in syndication when people absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, by this time now, I have fallen out of love with it and think it is a super obnoxious show. Part of that might be a little biased because uh, one of the worst relationships that I was ever in was spent watching the office on repeat. Now I'm not saying that is the reason that I do not like the office anymore. I am saying, I think I started watching it over and over and then I started realizing the flaws of what it was. And also the fact that, and when I say flaws, I, it's not a terrible thing. Um, it's just not, it, I don't know. I grew out of it. it is not the kind of humor that appeals to me anymore. And I think it went on too long. However, I will stand by the fact that I think the season one and season two depiction of, of the secretary and the paper salesman's relationship where they can't be together is beautifully written. Sort of this awkward friendship where, where you can see that there is clear attraction to them, but there is legitimate obstacles put in place. Uh, the actor's, really don't overplay it. There's so much subtlety in their performances and there's a very, very slow movement in their story arc and it is beautiful. I actually think that when they get together is sort of when the show jumped the shark um, because their characters change completely and you lose that authenticity and that groundedness, which was the thing that made the wackiness of the first half of the second season and the first season such a great show. And then it just becomes a cartoon for the rest of the time. Now, fun fact, John Krasinski in real life is married to Emily Blunt, and I think they are one of the top adorable actual couples in real life. Okay, the whole thing that sparked this this topic this week, I had a whole nother topic completely written up and it was going to be about some deep philosophy about other things about Pat's identity. We'll get into that next week, maybe. But I have been re-watching Better Call Saul. I watched the first three seasons when the show first came out and then I forgot all about it and I've been re-watching it. And one, 
it is amazingly written TV. Anything Vince Gilligan does is perfect. But I have to say, the the relationship between Kim Wexler and Jimmy McGill, and Kim is played by Rhea Seahorn and Jimmy McGill, Bob Odenkirk, they are fantastic. Not, not only is almost every aspect of, of this TV show perfect, it's uh, sort of a supple complimentary show to Breaking Bad, which was perfect TV. I'd be, I'd be really interested. Has anybody watched Better Call Saul, but not Breaking Bad? I wonder what you think about the show Better Call Saul if you don't see it building into Breaking Bad in this sort of beautiful parallel and yet separate world. Because I think that's one of the things that allowed a lot of the fan base to build up with the show that would probably be a little slower paced than people would expect normally on its own. But we see it building into one of our favorite things ever. And there's such beautiful payoff and it's so well paced in that respect, but I don't know how it stands on its own. I don't think anybody ever will and should because everybody should have seen breaking bad by now. The reason I think their relationship is so wonderfully done is because it is far from perfect, but they are great. But, and they have this weird work relationship that is up and down and they doubt each other and they fight and there's a coldness, but there's a consistency too. And I, I part of this is because it's a TV show over a movie. So they have far more time then two hours to let it play out in a movie. You sort of have to decide, are they going to end up together in the end or are they not? This show just shows two people and sort of the ups and downs, but there's consistency in the fact, you know, they always love each other. Even in moments they hate each other. And I think that is a really uh, fun thing to show. Not a fun thing, Right but it is just that really extra added level of authenticity to this relationship. Because I think so many writers of fictional stories always have couples. It's either they're fighting or they're loving each other because that's the way you convey relationship in a medium to an audience in a story. But in real life, we know that things are very different than that. Uh, people can have a fundamental love for one another, but be going through, through experiences where they hate <laughs> those people. And Kim and Jimmy are back and forth, back and forth all over the time. Now I must confess I am only halfway through season four. I'd watched through season three. Originally things might change. Uh, Kim doesn't show up in breaking bad. So maybe something happens at some point that makes Jimmy, uh, Saul Goodman. But from what I've seen in the first three and a half seasons, they have just a beautifully depicted realistic relationship that I think anybody would be happy to have because at the end of the day, they have a partner to be there for them in their corner, even if on a day-to-day -day basis they have to go to war with them in the courtroom or just any other way. Uh, okay, so like I said, some of these on the list are, are on my list of best for 
their authenticity or the beauty of their writing or portrayals. Some of these are just my mushy picks, my Hallmark picks. This next one, actually, you know, I said that, but we'll see. Roman Holiday, the characters of Princess Anne and Joe Bradley, played by Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck. One of my favorite movies, some of my favorite actors. And I, I love this movie. Uh, it's one of five movies that I actually took to Afghanistan. That's right. We were, all, you know, we were allowed very limited space to bring our personal effects. And the thing I chose was a five DVD collection of Audrey Hepburn movies. <laughs> That's right. I didn't watch them while I was there, uh, except for Roman Holiday. But I, yeah. Uh, so this movie, if you have not seen it, but you like movies, this is an amazing movie. I don't think it has been remade yet. Uh, there's probably a lot of Disney movies that have sort of gotten close to what this is. It would be a very familiar plot. The plot itself is not the most groundbreaking thing, but the, the way they made the film is... One, it is aesthetically a gorgeous film and to realize if it's a black and white film and you're raving about the, uh, the cinematography of it, you know that that's got to be a great film, right? Now, what I love about it is that it is, it is a borderline ro romantic relationship, um, but it's really sort of a platonic relationship as well. It is it's sort of a fraternal friendship and it is very close you have this princess who never gets to escape her palace life and a reporter joe bradley who basically helps her sneak off for a day and then they have the best day ever in rome and the thing that i think makes this movie so amazing is that joe just has to leave at the end and princess anne goes back to her royal life and the fact that they don't end up together is is like this deep sad, but it's a, it's not a tragedy movie. It's the way it had to be. That is the thing I'm most worried about. If they ever remade this movie, they were so good in the old movies about how, you know if the if the people needed to leave at the end of the film to make the story better, that's what they did. But their their day is such a fantastic day. It is so fun. And they just have amazing chemistry together. Okay, the next one. This is not going to come from a specific film, but we're going to choose one because it is uh, Batman and the Joker. Now, I think I was really meaning sort of like romantic relationships when I was saying best couples. But if you think about this, it's got they have to be one of the tightest, you know buddies uh in in fictional there's been a lot of movies you guys know what i'm talking about i'm not bringing up obscure characters right now everybody knows the dark knight was one of the biggest films of the modern era and both being the most highly ranked superhero movie of all time and such but there's been a lot of depictions of batman and the joker uh, the one I'm I'm gonna go with though is the original Tim Burton, Michael Keaton, and Jack Nicholson, Batman and the Joker. I think their portrayal of the the different characters. Now, here's the thing I'm saying about Batman and the Joker too, right? Okay, one, 
I think Harley Quinn is one of the worst comic creations in recent history for various reasons, but there's been this ridiculous, ridiculous sort of uh, romanticization of Harley Quinn's relationship with the Joker. Now that's like a silver linings playbook right there, right? Two crazy people fall in love in an asylum. It's a crazy person and her and his therapist, but their relationship is full of abuse and it is not a, it is not a partnership. They are just people that are, are paired together through the narrative of the story, but there's, she's his henchman. And then they spend different times like being at each other's throats, but that's not just because they both wear makeup and she's obsessed with him. That does not make it a relationship. The relationship that is so fascinating is that Batman and the Joker exist because of each other. Let's not go into the actual canon of the story, but in the movies that they are fighting each other, they exist because of one another. The Joker antagonizes Batman. He doesn't just go out and commit crimes. He doesn't care about the crimes. He's trying to create his sense of identity by antagonizing the world's greatest detective who only exists to to avenge uh you know the wrongdoings that he can't, he's been traumatized by as a child. So um, and they never kill each other. I mean, well, that's debatable according to the comic books and stuff. I don't actually know because I don't follow. I only know these things from the movies. But it, but Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson's portrayal of these characters doing this beautiful, beautiful dance around one of each other um, was just beautiful. So when whenever I see these stupid social media memes that are, like Harley Quinn looking for her Joker. I'm like, no, jo the you know, be, be your Batman looking for your Joker because that's the person that gives you purpose, even if it's the person that's going to kill you <laughs> in the end. But isn't that always the way? All right. So I, you know, we're going to do a bonus pick right now. Um, it is not a specific couple. It is Patrick Swayze and anybody he's in a movie with. I always I want to give as many shout-outs to Patrick Swayze in my life as I can. I love Patrick Swayze so much. And I, I, I feel so bad because I didn't become a fan until after he passed away. And I because I never thought I wanted to see any of the movies he was in. And then I was at a casino with one of my best friends, um, Hetero Life Partners, and he put on the last... 20 minutes of dirty dancing, which I had never seen. And I was like, Oh wow, this is, I kind of like this movie. And I might hate myself a little bit for that. And then I watched the whole thing. And then I watched a whole bunch of other Patrick Swayze movies and we lost a national treasure. That man, uh, was the greatest. So that is just my bonus pick. I, maybe if we can find a way to mention him in every single podcast from here on out, uh, just so we know. Um, also though I do, I, uh, and I know that if you're going to pick, you know, a, a relationship movies that you should do, um, maybe people are thinking ghost or dirty dancing, which are sort of like his two most prolific romance films. I, I guess, I think I actually don't know about ghost. I know there's one scene that I've seen cause it's like in montages at the Academy Awards I actually know nothing about that film at all. But him and Demi Moore are doing pottery, and they think he's a ghost at the time. 
Seriously, do not know anything about that. Uh, I do know that Dirty Dancing is a guilty pleasure movie, and I say that because it's one of those things I don't want to admit that I might own a copy of. Um, so I just say it publicly for everyone to know. Uh, do do you have the major, major problem, though? The, the, the big quote from it nobody puts baby in a corner um i just i I would just like to point out that uh jennifer gray was not sitting in a corner when that line is is uttered um there's there's a little i don't know what it's called on the wall it's it's where one of the columns is built into the wall so there is technically a slight angle but I wouldn't really call her sitting in a corner. Maybe she's backed up to what would technically be structurally. Okay. I'm splitting hairs now because this is not even one of my picks. Let's move on. Next one is Bonnie and Clyde, uh, who in the best film adaptation, the classic one was portrayed by Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty. There's a more current version and there's some smaller versions, but let's say the only version is the Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty sixties version, which is one, an amazing film in and of itself. And two, um, there's some, some reasons I know there were an actual historical couple. I've been to the museum, the, the Bonnie and Clyde death museum. There, there are some historical figures that I'm fascinated with. And part of the reason I'm fascinated with them is there's a lot of mythology surrounding them. Some of it misunderstood too. I think one of the things that draws me to them so much is that they were a real pair couple friends, just inseparable. I mean, if you're willing to die with somebody else to do something you love that is the close partnership and kinship that I think anybody could hope to find in a lifetime. The, I'm going to say it one more time. The interesting thing about them is if you do some research into the actual story, there is theories that uh, Clyde was actually gay and had um, one or more male lovers that he, he would go visit during his times together. Uh, Bonnie was married the whole time she never got divorced from her original marriage. So it's debatable historically, uh, how much their relationship was about being in love and how much it was both a business and friend venture. It might've been a mix of all of these things too. I think to say that one of those things was going on does not discount that they weren't sort of a Romeo and Juliet pair but it just adds some more context to understand that their, their story is actually far more robust and in depth than even the film portrayal, which is one of the reasons I think they are so fascinating. Also the fact that they were sort of idolized because of their, their symbolism at the time in American history where the great depression was going on and they represented what, you know, the news was calling at the time modern day Robin hoods because they were stealing and then they were giving their money to the poor farmer families. And it was just sort of representing people doing what they needed to do to survive. And so they sort of became these, these anti-hero icons of the time and persisted through history. Also fun bonus fact about the film from the 1960s. Gene Wilder is in that film and he, Gene Wilder 
and Gilda Radner being one of the other real life relationships that I think was probably perfect, but ended too tragically too soon by the death of Gilda Radner, but they were magical together. Um, in fact, it sort of affected, uh, the death of Gilda affected Gene for the rest of his career. And it was super sad. And, and I am especially sad because Gene Wilder is one of my favorite actors of all time. I think he is, when I say underrated, it's just because if you hear conversations, nobody brings him up as much as he should be, even though he's super famous and a lot of his movies are so treasured and he is just because he had so much range Everybody knows me. I come from the comedy world, but the funny thing is I'm not super interested in comedy. It's just what I found an ability to do to entertain people better than be authentically serious or anything else. Gene Wilder had that range where most of the things he did were comedies and yet he could play them so straight and sincerely and authentically with, with just this humanness that was beautiful and the the world is a lot less funny without him in it and uh another person that look up all the movies he ever done because they're all amazing okay the next one is going to be sort of similar to bonnie and clyde and that is butch cassidy and the sundance kid who were in a film starring paul newman and robert redford also from the same era sort of the 60s is my favorite era for films just aesthetically um and the writing pacing acting everything about them i just i am so drawn to the look of 60s movies um don't know why but most of my favorite mostly and a lot of them are paul newman movies cool hand luke is one of my favorite movies of all time um and also, you know, another or buddy. Anyway, uh, they, they're so they have a similar thing too that they're also robbers, and if like you're, they're bound by this common connection to robbing banks, but they they have each other's back, and they're willing to die together. There's theories that, in fact, they were not uh, killed by the Federalists in their final gunfight, but then sort of escaped and were living in Bolivia off the radar under different identities. I believe a lot of the research has debunked that theory, but the fact that at the time people thought it could have happened, it sort of let the legend of them get larger and larger. And it's, and the fact that it's two perfect leading men that couldn't have more charisma together in a film that is an amazing blend of comedy action drama and almost, almost like documentary level. Just um, when I'm saying that, because there's, there's so little dialogue compared to a lot of other movies. So you have a lot of these just silently framed shots of uh, scenery or action. It almost feels like a, a documentary at some point. And yet when the dialogue happens, it is so on the sharp. It is so sharp and fitting and not wasted. It is efficient. And it is just one of the best movies of all time. 
The next movie I was a little hesitant to bring up because I have not seen it since it came out. It came out a long time ago, but I'm going off of my memory of it. And I did look up reviews to make sure it hadn't fallen off too much since it came out because sometimes a movie will come out and get a lot of acclaim. And then later, um, you know, people over time or the context of it will decide that movies were not as good as we thought they were at the time. But this is a movie from my memory. I still think is one of my favorite and, so it's sort of like Roman holiday esque, just a modern day telling. It is a film lost in translation and the characters, uh, Charlotte and Bob Harris are played by Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray. And it is a beautiful, that's the move. That's the word of, of the week portrayal of a friendship that in the same, in the same way that Roman holiday is Right. They don't wind up together. Now there's this weird age difference that I don't think it actually would end up being that weird given uh, what we think of as appropriate at the time. People probably would think it's totally normal, but it wouldn't be like a standardly portrayed relationship film age difference in a movie where that age difference wasn't part of the plot, where there wasn't some but that's not how they're playing the relationship with these characters in the movie. They're basically like bestest friends in the whole wide world. I know I said bestest right there for this small, uh, small frame of time. And it's one of those where it's like they're, they come, they come from so different worlds that they, um, they bring different things into the relationship. And so I think it's, it's, it's a happy, it's funny. It's sort of like the opposite of Roman holiday. It's a happy movie, which technically has a sad ending. And yet it would be happier because the, the conflict is not them having problems and differences. It's you watch them build and change each other in a positive way for two hours. But again, like I've said for so many of the other ones, it's just the authenticity in the writing and the amazing acting and just everything about it is an amazing relationship. Uh, This is the last one I'm going to do from... Also, I don't know if I did 10 or not. Uh, And I got... um, one more that I'm going to talk about before we discuss the silver linings playbook couple. Uh, but this is Lorelai Gilmore and Luke Danes from Gilmore girls. Lorelai being played by Lauren Graham and Scott Patterson was Luke. One of my favorite TV shows of all time. Don't tell anybody that because it will bore them. They already know if they know me, I love that show. I don't know why it's a ridiculous show, but it, I think it was so well made it is a very quirky show. It is uh, after I saw Twin Peaks and this is not my personal like theory. It's something I felt, but I've confirmed it on the internet. So many people think it that it's sort of like the, the alternate genre counterpart to Twin Peaks. The creator of the show was a huge fan and has so many Twin Peaks Easter eggs throughout the run of the series including specifically hiring a whole bunch of the actors that were in Twin Peaks to be in uh, Gilmore Girls. 
And the reason I think that it is so close and it feels so close is because it is really about a town. It's, it's called Gilmore Girls, but the show is about Stars Hollow. And it is just filled with this weird, quirky cast of characters that many of them, you know, only might appear in one geographical location or have one quirk. And they borderline being too absurd to be real people. And yet collectively it works somehow. Now, the reason Lorelai and Luke's relationship is so good is because like so many of the other ones I put on this list, it's not perfect. In fact, they don't spend most of the series together. Um, they spend most of the series, you know, and in, in some melodramatic way, being frustratingly just out of reach of one another. They have timing issues. Different people come into each other's lives. They're not single at the same times. They're not. But um, they, so the thing I love about them is that Lorelai is this uh, free-spirited, crazy sort of... Uh, off, off the cuff, um, impulsive, overly emotional person. And Luke is the opposite. And the reason that they spend so much of the series apart is because (laughs) Luke cannot, uh, square with his emotions and he doesn't talk enough and he can't say what he's thinking. And maybe my love for this show has nothing to do with Lauren Graham or any of the other characters. Maybe I've just finally found a character who wears a backwards baseball hat and can't ever say what he feels despite uh, basically being in the presence of the woman he loves every single day of his life, bringing her coffee. And he's just powerless to do anything about it as he watches her go through a whole bunch of other people that he thinks he's going to end up with until finally he gets his chance. And when he does, it's fine. Uh, (laughs) That's the weird part, right? Like it's, it's fine, but that's the great part too is that when they finally get together, of course it's uh, like a hot and heavy right to kick it off because they're excited about finally having this thing that all the viewers thought should happen the whole time. But then it, it fiddles that fizzles down to moderate where it stays and they, they become weird. Um, and, but yet they're connected for basically the rest of the series until some weird stuff happens, but then in the movies, but the thing is they, they love each other. They work things out and they finally get married at the end. Now, the weirdest thing is my biggest problem with Gilmore girls is actually, uh, the Gilmore girls. That's right. And I think anybody that watches this show knows that, that, uh, Rory is the worst character of all. doesn't really add anything to the show. You could take her out and it would be a better show. And she's supposed to be one of the main characters, right? And I'm saying this, I think she, the, the show was clearly created originally. Cause I think it was like on the WB back in the early two thousands or something. And they were appealing to like their, their whole demographic was young teens and who would later become millennial girl audiences. And so they needed somebody that they, you know, that, that demographic could see themselves in, in TV. Nobody loves Rory. 
uh, everybody, if anything, love Laura Lai, and she's pretty despicable too a lot of the times. What people really resonate with is the town, is the weird characters, and uh, even even Lorelai's parents are almost better characters than than she is. Yeah, but I love Lauren Graham's portrayal in that. Um, maybe because I find it far too familiar with people that I've known in my life, reoccurring um, characters. But I, uh, it is a great show. Nobody hate me for liking it. I've never made anybody watch it, but uh, people know that secretly I watch it a lot, uh, especially, especially when I'm down. And it is, that is my best probably I'm sad show because uh, the level of conflict, it's, it's great, and I don't care. So uh, uh, an interesting thing, going back to the identity theory, though, this is something that happened interesting. When I was going through my big sad recently, I had never watched the movies, the Gilmore Girls movies, which came out, I think, two years ago. And I had watched the whole series, seven seasons, several times, but I'd never watched the movies. So I sat down, and I was like, I'm finally going to watch these movies. Uh, the, the big debate amongst Gilmore Girls fans of the whole time, even though we do hate Rory, is we were always like, what... Uh, what was the best boyfriend for her? There, there's, we could go off on his whole separate podcast about that um, because there is definitely different levels of compatibility. I was always the, the outlier on this. I was always Team Logan, and nobody in the Gilmore Girl world is Team Logan. Every it's um, Jess or uh, I'm I'm blanking on on her original boyfriend's name, but it's. But I always thought Jess was terrible, uh, and and it's because even even the most perfectly written boy for her would always have some reason why he was not. So that's why that's why there's debate about which one was the perfect. It's sort of like the Twilight debates or something, right? That that somebody has something good for them going, but yet they have a negative trait as well. And I never liked how Jess came into their lives, and I never liked how he left, and I never liked how he acted. Now the fascinating thing is that in the movies. He comes back uh, as sort of as in some guest roles, and they have completely rewritten him as a grown person who is incredibly mature and supportive, helpful, and perfect. And he comes back and sort of helps Rory through all her problems. At this point, she is having basically an on and off again affair with um, Logan, whose team I was always on when I was younger and watched only the TV show. And she's basically with him about as much as anybody could be. And yet he, they are worse now together. And I have totally decided that if, if you go movie Gilmore girls world, Jess is, is the man. Um, this, this all plays into the identity (laughs) philosophy. Uh, this, this was all planned, right? I had this wonderful plan to, to get to this point at the beginning. No, I didn't. Um, that, that Jess is not who he was in the TV series. Okay. I've talked enough about Gilmore girls. Cause I could have a whole podcast about Gilmore girls and I'm not, this is silver Linux playbook. So where do, do Tiffany and Pat fall on a list of best fictional couples? Well, I think, um, uh, it is, it is a cute portrayal of, of sort of a very flirtatious um, courtship over over two hour movie 
And you know there are moments that I absolutely love. Uh, I think... It can still be a date if you order raisin bread. ...is one of the best written lines in all of cinema. You have moments of absolute brilliance in the writing of their relationship, but I don't think the actual categorization of their relationship is very good compared to any of these other great examples. Um, I, I think I, my, my theory would be very contested in online world because I've looked up some lists of who are the best fictional couples in movies and stuff. And def- this, this makes lists. It's not the top of lists, but it makes lists if you go out to like 20, 20 top spaces or something. But, you know, the part of it is too that um, their, their relationship is built on deceit and a lie, uh, basically. The, I mean, look at this. The whole time, Pat's trying to get back with his ex-wife, right? So, yes, yes, Tiffany's falling in love with him at some point, but he's not even paying attention to her in that way and just finds her annoying that whole way until he falls out of love with his ex-wife. How romantic is that? That, oh, wait, you are great now that I have decided that I didn't want the person that I thought I wanted. However, you were not important enough to be the person I wanted uh, when I thought I had a different goal or option. Also, uh, Tiffany lies about sending the letters to Nikki, too. So what's... Like, how are you going to build a relationship off of trust? Trust is one of the most important things, I think. One of the most fundamental building blocks of a relationship. And Hi, this is Nikki. Leave a message. Oh, swingers. That's a relationship I'd love to talk about. It's not swingers in the sense of, of like, when I'm saying swingers, relationship swingers. Uh, it's the film, uh, the Vince Vaughn. And, and uh, I'm just blanking. My mind is not working anywhere. Um, John Favreau. Uh, buddy love movie. That's a genre about basically friends like uh, Bonnie and Clyde, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid, Batman and the Joker type of relationship. But uh, we, that should have made the list too. But, but uh, Tiffany is saying that she will give Pat's letters to his ex-wife, Nikki to help him get back with her because there's a restraining order that Nikki took out against Pat. So he's not allowed to give the letters in person and she says she will do this in exchange for him helping her with her ballroom dancing competition. So now you have extortion and you have lying and you have like, I just, so, so cinematically it works, but in real relationship theory, I don't think you have the building blocks for anything that would be substantive, substantive, And you have, even at the end of the moment, like it's very cinematic to have somebody like chase the other person down and being like, I'm sorry, I love you. I love you the whole time. But you spent the whole movie not being in love with her. Um, You you developed into being friends and then, you know, being in love. But I've had it pointed out to me, and this is the common theme of the podcast, really, and the thing that I always want to talk about with people and nobody ever talks to me about it with it is when did that transition happen at first? Clearly they don't like each other, or at least Pat doesn't like Tiffany. Tiffany may like him. Uh, at some point they both 
independently decide that they are going to be friends with the other one. And then they both independently decide that they are in love with the other person. And it's maybe, I just think I could figure out some things about my life. If somebody could point out to me this example of, of when those transitions happen in a person. Now, something I didn't mention is that there is a winner. I realize I said that we were not empiricizing this list at all, but there is a clear winner of the top couple from all of fictional fandom TV movies and, and entertainment genres. And the, the um, absolute winner of the best fictional couple goes to drum roll, please. Doug Dorsey and Kate Mosley from The Cutting Edge. Doug Dorsey, played by D.B. Sweeney, and Kate Mosley, of course, being Moira Kelly. And it is a um, just one of the, the best movies ever made. I think there was some debate originally. Was I going to start a Cutting Edge podcast, or was I going to start a Silver Linings Playbook podcast? And I couldn't come up with puns for The Cutting Edge. Why? Because... You just don't do that. It is perfect in its titleage, and you can't make fun of something like that. They have, um, would they wind up together in real life? Absolutely not. They are, it is a total work of fiction. There is no authenticity in it. It is probably not even that good of a movie, but it, it is my favorite movie. Why? Not because it is a romance at all, because it is about ice skating, and I always wanted to be a figure skater for various reasons we will discuss in future episodes. But Doug Dorsey uh, was a hockey player and he was supposed to be on the Olympic team and he gets hurt and misses his chance to get a gold medal. Kate Mosley is a figure skater and she is just uh, a stuck up rich girl that is impossible to find the perfect partner with. And then they decide that maybe these two should be paired up and try for the pairs figure skating and they go to the Olympics and I don't want to spoil anything, but it, it works out pretty well for both of them with absolutely cookie cutter trope filled romantic comedy from the nineties. Nothing groundbreaking about the story or anything. All all I can say is that, uh, you know what? Also, I'm going to say maybe they are not the perfect couple because um, Moira Kelly is uh, paired up with D.B. Sweeney in the film and not myself, which is a tragedy. Not that I love Moira Kelly or anything. I'm just, I'm just saying. I don't know. Well, whatever. All right. Well, uh, that looks like that is about it for this week. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, like I said, always, if you ever have any questions, comments, or, or feedback, or would like to be a guest on the Silver Linings Playcast, hit me up. Uh, we, I guess we're not on the social media, but uh, you can always email us at silverliningsplaycast at gmail.com. Uh, we are uh, streaming on all the podcast websites. I'm telling you this at the end. If you get this far, you would have already known that on the, the Apple podcasts and Spotify and anchor and iHeartRadio radio and anything. Um, so that is it. And guess what? I guess I sounded pretty happy. 
on this one, I assure you, I am not. <laughs> but I, maybe I am, too, because I love this podcast. It is the most consistent thing I've done. And I've been better friends with this podcast than I've been with my friends. So anyway, um, we'll, we will uh, see you next week. We will definitely be talking about, hopefully, some of these topics that I had meant to get into this week. But we got sidetracked because we had a better topic. But in, until next time, uh, we will see you down the road and Excelsior. He's kind of crazy. She's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is divorced. The other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a silver linings play cast. Oh, yeah.